0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Kill Team goes behind closed doors to tell a riveting story of specialist Adam Winfield, a 21-year-old infantryman in Afghanistan who attempted to help with the help of his father, to alert the military to heinous war crimes in his platoon. Tragically, his father's pleas went unheeded. Once Adam's fellow soldiers got wind of what he had done, they threatened to silence him permanently. Forced to choose between his conscience and his own survival, Adam found himself drawn into a moral abyss, faced with a split-second decision that would change his life forever. We're joined today by the director and producer, as of The Kill Team. He's also an Academy Award-nominated film director for The Death of Kevin Carter. That would be Dan Krauss. Dan, welcome to Film School. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is a remarkable uh, documentary um, for a lot of reasons, um, and not the least of which is uh, the access that you had to the key players in this very compelling, unfolding Tragic drama about the life of these this of this platoon, um, tell me a little bit about first of all how you came to this story and how you were able to gain such remarkable access
1: sure well i I came to the story in the spring of two thousand and eleven after reading a New York Times magazine article about the kill team trials that were to take place in the uh, ensuing months and uh, when I opened the article I saw immediately I was struck by a photograph of Adam Winfield with his parents um, this, you know, smiling young skinny kid uh, and the, the caption beneath the photograph uh, read uh, something like Specialist Adam Winfield who attempted to stop his platoon mates from murdering civilians and then who was charged himself with murder something along those lines and it caught my attention immediately because I thought you know, how could he how could he be both a whistleblower and a murder suspect? How could he be both of these things? How could he have tried to act in the moral right, but then be accused of acting in the moral wrong? What what had happened to him? What was his journey? What were the pressures that had forced him to um, try to navigate you know, these, these very difficult moral waters? And so um, I immediately uh, composed a, a letter to the Winfield family and, and sent it to them through the their website uh, that they had set up for, for Adam. And um, a few days later received a, uh, a response from their attorney, the defense attorney who was representing Adam and his court martial. And I initiated a dialogue with him that um, little by little uh, led to a, ne- a negotiation for access by, by which uh, I would essentially embed with the defense team with Adam's defense attorneys. Um, and, Uh, be able to document all the pretrial process um, and, you know, be face-to-face with the Winfields. So it was sort of an extraordinary, uh, in some ways it was fortuitous, and in some ways, um, you know, uh, it it just had a a sort of momentum of its own. In other words, the the film very much... uh, uh, took on a, a life and momentum of its own uh, because of the urgency of the trial. Uh, things were happening very quickly, and I jumped on board. And, um, and thankfully, things worked out for the best. But uh, initially, it was very difficult to get access because, of course, the military had placed uh, a great deal of um, restrictions on the people involved. Uh, and, you know, they were essentially on lockdown. So uh, working with the military on this was um, – it was a foregone conclusion that they would not be interested in, um, having someone like me, uh, uh, you know, to work with someone like me to, to make a film. Of course, um, Mm. uh, I immediately, uh, had had the impulse to find another way into the story. And that was through Adam's defense team.
0: Now your meeting, your your initial meeting was under an extraordinary set of, circumstances under the circumstances I as I recall he was what tell us about that first initial kind of shooting yeah
1: so uh about six weeks or so after I read that New York Times magazine article I was face to face with Adam Winfield for the first time so it was a very very fast process
0: Um, um, and Dan uh, what was Dan what was your first impression of Adam and did it differ greatly from what you thought going in
1: well, I didn't have a great um, sense of who he was going in because the newspapers uh, and magazines hadn't had access to him, so there was very little that I could glean about his persona. I mean, I had a sense that he was, um, a, you know, a good kid from a good family. He seemed to have, um, you know, a good upbringing, things things of that nature. I mean, I, he seemed like a good American kid, small. You know, maybe uh, I think a lot of the articles I read mentioned that he was, you know, not much more than 100 pounds, a skinny, slight kid, not exactly the Army poster boy. So I had this impression of of a, you know, a good young guy um, who was maybe a little above, you know, uh, a little uh, perhaps striving to be something, uh, you know, greater than than, uh, you know, he had he had thought of himself in other words he was trying to he was very ambitious in that way and so um i uh when i met him um i I think my impression was that he was frightened you know he looked uh his eyes were sort of twitching he was i could detect a, a slight tremble in his fingers um he was quiet reserved he was uh he, he just seemed uncomfortable and, and a little bit frightened, unsure what was happening. Um, and as I got to spend a bit more time with him, he um, he opened up to me more and more. I think he was glad to have someone with whom he could speak that wasn't either someone from the Army, a defense attorney, or uh, quite frankly, his fr- family. Because, you know, you talk to your own parents, for example, much differently than you would talk to uh, someone that you consider, you know, m- more part of your, you know, cohort. Even yeah. though there's some fifteen or twenty years separating us, we were able to sort of connect on on the level of, you know, friends. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that was a good outlet for him because he hadn't really had that opportunity to talk about his experience with someone outside of his his family or or the you know the military.
0: So you you're here you're in this meeting the defense room small room. And they're getting ready to do what, as far as his legal case was concerned.
1: Yeah. So the first, so the first time I started filming with Adam and and his family, they were uh, trying to get him released from prison before his court martial. Um, they were they were putting in a bid with with the military judge for um, to have him released from what they call pretrial confinement. Mm-hmm. Uh, several of the other soldiers had been granted this release, so it was not at all a stretch that he would be uh, released to his family before before the court-martial and so the the first day i met with them they were they were heading into into the uh the courtroom to uh to find out whether or not to sort of testify really uh to the judge about whether or not they could uh, care for adam whether he would be a flight risk these sorts of things and Mm -hmm. so they were the tension was was very high in the room the emotions were very strong and um, of course, the pressure was enormous.
0: Now, um, again, going back to sort of this level of uh, comfort that you were able to establish with um, with the participants in, in the Kill Team. By the way, when, when, when I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Dan Krause, he's the director and producer of the documentary The Kill Team. Uh, it's coming out today, August 8th, and uh, at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles, one of the premier art houses in all of Southern California, and I understand that you're going to be um, down here for uh, for uh, some some of the screenings. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I'll be down uh, Friday night, and uh, we'll be doing Q&As at the 7.30 and 9.40 p.m. shows on Friday night, and also the 7.30 and 9.40 p.m. shows on Saturday night.
0: So getting back to this, love, so the, the parents, um, Emma and, um, I'm sorry. Christopher. Christopher, thank you. Um they were um they it's hard to imagine um better advocates for um their son than they were, especially in the case of Chris who was a ex-Marine. That's right. And um and understood what his son had gone through, I'm sure in ways that it, that Emma couldn't couldn't imagine, but she Well,
1: interesting actually if if you don't mind me interjecting sure, quickly. Please. Um you know, it's true that he had a certain um, recognition of uh, the military experience that Emma didn't. But also, uh, the one thing that I found very compelling about their circumstance with father and, between father and son, their relationship, is that uh, Chris had never been to combat. He had never been deployed. Mm. Uh, he was stationed in Southern California his entire uh, experience as a Marine. So mm. in some ways, he, he wasn't able to... Uh, he, he couldn't speak to Adam in ter- in terms that um, that would kind of assuage his trepidation about going to combat or his you know his concerns when he was in Afghanistan. Chris had never experienced anything like that.
0: They were okay. That that yeah. That does. That's a huge distinction to be made because everything I've ever heard and and when I've talked to vets, uh, they. It's, it's a kind of a, a funny thing. They they want to talk about it, but they don't want to talk about it at the same time. It's a very kind of interesting dance they'll do uh, yes. because I don't think they can adequately really describe the feeling, the sense of being in combat, shot at, their life's at risk, all the things that are going on, the adrenaline and everything else. It's difficult to really understand if you haven't been there. So Yes, absolutely true. Now, um, let's let's talk let's get to the really the meat and bones of this particular story the kill team um adam is stationed in afghanistan uh and his the guy in charge of his particular unit has just recently been injured um i assume an ied lost a leg he's out and they're now bringing in sergeant gibbs this new commander talk a little bit talk us through a little bit about those circumstances
1: Yes, I mean you you're exactly right that they had lost uh, a staff sergeant in, in the in the platoon to an IED. Uh his I believe it was his left leg was um was blown off in the explosion. He was a he was a very charismatic, well-liked guy, uh strong leader from from all accounts. Um and the impact of that, of course, both physically and psychologically was tremendous on the on the um the squad and the platoon. I mean, it was a big blow to them and i think it was the first time that they really sensed that um you know this is for keeps that these guys aren't fooling around that this is you know they i think you know at that moment war was not exciting or fun at all of course um as you can imagine it was horrifying and 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 tragic it was the one time speaking to to all these guys that i could really sense that they were trying to sort of hold back their emotions a bit um when they described the loss of this, uh, their first, uh, squad leader. Um, and then, uh, Gibbs comes in, uh, I believe around Thanksgiving time of 2009 and he is, um, he's a combat veteran. You know, he's, he's done three tours already. Um, he, uh, has, uh, extensive experience as a, as a leader. He's, uh, very charismatic himself. Uh, even though he was new to this unit that had been training and working together for a number of years he fit in very quickly he just had a way of um getting the guys to trust him mm-hmm. uh because he knew what he was doing
0: well just my impression this is the you know the armchair psychologist it does seem that based on what we find out he is in some ways the best possible and the least desirable kind of leader in the circumstances that he came in to the unit, he provided a sense—I'm certain of certainty, moral certainty—in whatever he was asking them to do, but not so much in what they were actually at being led towards. Is that—is that a fairly? Am I?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, I think that all of these guys um, who were involved, this unit was. Being deployed for the first time they had you know they had been in garrison for i think three or so years before their unit stood up and was shipped over so um you know this was new to to the guys in this unit and and gibbs was a combat veteran so they they look to the more experienced soldiers and the leaders for their sense of um uh for for any kind of moral guidance you know for for their moral kind of structure and um, I think when some of these, when he, when Gibbs started t- talking about some of the things that had happened in Iraq, where he was first deployed, um, I, I think a lot of these guys probably assume that that was exactly what war is—that these kinds of atrocities occur, and it's not unusual, and people don't talk talk about it at home. But um, you know, what happens over here stays over here, and um, that's just the, the cold uh, reality of of being an infantryman is that, you know, you're part of something that is, um, that at times um, seems to people back home to be moral abhor- morally abhorrent, but is is necessary. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there was any, I think in many of the minds of these guys, um, there was nothing wrong um, with, with what was happening, what, you know, Gibbs was discussing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they were discussing among themselves. It didn't seem at that time in that place that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like it was war.
0: One of the, the sort of sidebars to your, in this film for me, it, it, the difference, and I've never really heard many in-detail in discussions about the difference between the war experience for U.S. soldiers, servicemen, between Iraq and Afghanistan— I don't know what the different internal dynamics of those two different theaters of war were, how they were similar and how they were different. I have an impression that they're very different, but I don't know what those differences are. Did you yeah, well, Did you have a sense of that?
1: It's interesting. This this particular unit was originally slated to deploy to Iraq. They had all um, been told and had trained for uh, combat in, in Iraq, and that was, of course, it's a much you know, when you train for combat in Iraq, it's it's an urban environment, mm-hmm. so the training is much different. Um, and it seemed, as I, my understanding is, it was almost at the 11th hour that their orders got switched. They were suddenly being sent to Afghanistan, and they felt like they weren't equipped. They hadn't been trained properly for the kind of uh, uh, tasks that they would uh, encounter in southern Afghanistan. And they were also taking these new vehicles. They're called strikers, these large eight-wheeled, massive eight-wheeled vehicles that they felt weren't appropriate for Afghanistan. So um, there was a lot of nervousness, I think, hmm. uh, on the part of, of these soldiers uh, when when their orders to deploy were switched from Iraq to Afghanistan. And I think um, one of the big differences I you know, I can't say this, obviously, from firsthand, not having been deployed to either of these places and not having served in the military, but my understanding of those theaters, the differences. one big difference is that, you know, southern Afghanistan is a, a very, very remote part of the world. I mean, it, it um, you know, it is flat desert for miles around, nothing but sand and sky. Uh, and, and I think there's a um, a real feeling of isolation that you experience there that would probably not be the same as, uh, had they deployed to Iraq and been in, in larger urban areas, so
0: um, well, the reason... whether or
1: not that made the difference in this case, it's impossible to say, mm-hmm. of course. But I think what's what's um, hard to ignore is the idea that when you are in an isolated environment that's incredibly uh, unfamiliar, that is foreign to you, then it you can also dissociate from some of the values and some of the moral. Mm-hmm um principles that um that you were raised with. It's easier um in, a, in in that kind of alien environment to to uh find yourself drifting away from those. And I think that may have also played a role in these episodes.
0: Yeah, and the reason and that's an excellent point because the reason I was wondering is because Gibbs Sergeant staff Sergeant Gibbs came from Iraq. And so I mean he had been in Afghanistan it sounds like but again coming from Iraq and I don't know how that influenced the way that he was commanded these soldiers. And and I can imagine an urban environment like Iraq would provide an, an a level of anxiety and almost paranoia in that you're in the in amongst hundreds, if not thousands, of people, any of whom could be uh, you know, uh very dangerous to your to your life. So I I don't know if that is a mitigating factor or if it's just a whatever it is it is, but interesting just that sort of difference between those two theaters um yes. go ahead. yeah
1: the other thing of course to, to keep in mind here is is the effect of multiple deployments on yes. soldiers i mean yes. we saw with these with the sergeant bales case uh where he uh was um was charged i think and, and convicted with uh with murder in the in the slaughter of i think it would i want to say Nineteen civilians, or something on that order, mm-hmm. uh, in the um, in Afghanistan. Uh, by the way, Staff Sergeant uh, deployed from the exact same uh, uh, base here in, in the U.S. Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, four deployments, just like Gibbs. So you have to wonder mm-hmm. about the effect of these multiple deployments on on soldiers who have seen you know intense combat.
0: Yep, we're speaking with uh, Dan Krause. He's the director of the new documentary, The Kill Team. He's the director and producer of the film, The Kill Team, also uh, nominated for an Academy Award for the death of Kevin Carter. Um, what year was Kevin Carter? What, I, I was trying to remember. Was it two thousand? Uh,
1: the film. The film played around two thousand six.
0: Six. Okay. Um, so. Okay, so Sergeant Gibbs is now in place. Uh, he is uh very, sounds charismatic, striking kind of uh, commander, and he is beginning to have conversations with soldiers in the unit about ways in which you can... Go ahead, finish my sentence for me, please.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, the conversations began with war stories. You know, the guys wanting to hear about what Gibbs had done overseas and Gibbs sort of communicating um, a bit of what happened, uh, during his, his time in Iraq and sort of feeling out, you know, telling these stories with an eye to toward feeling out the, the members of his platoon for, for what they were comfortable with and what, what might, uh, make them uncomfortable. And so, uh, for example, uh, according to a a couple of guys in the platoon, he told a story about, uh, uh, shooting a car full of Iraqi civilians Mm -hmm. uh, at a checkpoint. And it was a shooting that was easily justified because the car uh, had approached the checkpoint and um, uh, presumably not stopped. And so it was a justified shooting uh, in a way. But it was also something that, according to one soldier at least, was something that Gibbs told him he had been looking for. He had Mm -hmm. been seeking an opportunity just like this where the fog of war could in a sense, disguise uh, an illegal killing or or perhaps an improper killing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, by discussing things like this, I think Gibbs was able to, again, according to these soldiers, uh, Gibbs was sort of uh, taking the temperature of the guys in his unit to see who might be interested or who might be um, someone that he could kind of put into his circle of trust. Mm -hmm um and perhaps carry out things in that same manner uh in Afghanistan so um that's that's where things started to take a dark turn um and more and more the soldiers became fixated on this idea of um what they could get away with um because it you know after hearing about uh Gibbs experiences in Iraq I think the soldiers felt that emboldened that there was a way that they could have the kind of combat experience that they were expecting Mm -hmm. um, and not have to abide by the rules, which were very restrictive at that time in 2010. You have to remember the restrictions that were being placed on soldiers at that time uh, were incredibly severe from the perspective, perspective of the soldiers. This is you know, following a long period, a long sustained period of, of civilian deaths, uh, presumably accidental, at the hands of uh, U.S. And, and coalition forces, mm-hmm. and and uh, and the army imposed these uh, uh, use of force restrictions that, in the eyes of the soldiers, protected the people that they that were trying to kill them more than they protected the soldiers themselves. So there's this sense that they were being kind of you know, uh, uh, put in harm's way needlessly. And also, uh, the mission to them seemed wildly, uh, first of all, purposeless and also, um, very, very, uh, different than what they had been trained to do. They were being asked to be nation builders and, uh, um, foster relationships with local, uh, Village elders and, and build wells and schools and things of this nature. Uh, it's not at all what they expected to do uh, in their training as infantrymen, and so there was a, a sense of more than disappointment, almost a sense of betrayal that they were that they were uh, being asked to take these enormous risks and to do things that they felt were um, were pointless. Essentially, right. and so mm-hmm. that that also led to this kind of boiling, uh, emotional, boiling uh, sensation in the in the platoon that perhaps uh, contributed to their their um, yeah their openness to uh, all of these conversations about uh, illegal killings.
0: I don't want to go too much further down this road because I think the one of the values of the kill team is to watch this unfold in the way that this, this very subtle, but well, not even that subtle really, this slippery slope that you can find yourself in. And then when you start enlisting people into these kind of activities, how... That whole group dynamic changes dramatically, and people get, yeah. get pulled into these circumstances. But I did want to kind of leave uh, our listeners with the the impression, just so there's no mistaking, Gibbs was uh, was uh, not at all adverse to showing off trophies of some of his previous uh, encounters with uh, with civilians, in the form of a of a budding necklace. Tell us just a, a little bit about what, what that was
1: well uh, you know according to the the soldiers that yeah. were involved Gibbs had um taken fingers from some of the victims mm-hmm. um uh that that uh had been killed in afghanistan and he uh presumably was uh going to yeah. make a, a necklace from the bones of these fingers that was according to these soldiers one of the one of his um uh one of his goals in in uh, taking these war trophies, um, he also of course uh, was uh, reported to have these uh, skull tattoos on his legs yes. um, of- that were intended to signify his kills and oh. I think in his trial he described them as uh, sort of like the markings that you would see on on uh, World War two uh, fighter fighter planes. Yeah. You'd see the kill markings on the side of the cockpit. He he shot of them as uh, essentially his kill record uh, that he had, had emblazoned on his on his leg. So he had a certain and and you know I should I don't want this to to seem like uh, an excuse that these guys all had been uh, that you know it. it uh, all, the story of course is much larger than just Gibbs and and Gibbs is not the um, Gibbs certainly committed horrific acts and and is responsible for a great deal of uh, um, criminal activity there's no question but um, you know I think the film uh, aims for to go sort of beyond individual culpability and seek a deeper understanding of the psychology of, of soldiers in combat of very young men and of course women who are in these isolated environments when the command structure uh, is perhaps not as robust as it should be. um, And there are these other uh, psychological uh, pressures that are exerted on them. This is the, this is the predictable result. So, um, you know, uh, I think Gibbs was the, perhaps the, the spark that lit the flame, but the, a lot of the ingredients, a lot of the flammable ingredients were already present before he arrived
0: yeah um, and absolutely and I, yeah. I i do not want to leave our listeners with the impression of just yes that this is a much much more of a of a detailed complex look into the psychology exactly as you said the psychology that goes into being a soldier and uh, reacting to uh, extraordinary circumstances trying to find your way you know and obviously Specialist Adam Winfield is a uh, is, is a a great kind of vantage point to see what was going on there. But there are others um, as well. Corporal Jeremy Morlock, who was just a remarkably smart and uh, observant young man, uh, 21 years old at the time, he he uh, what 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 was happening. Uh, in, in Afghanistan, uh, private first class, Andrew Holmes, another one, 19 year olds at the 19 year old at the time and Justin Stoner, all of them play very important parts. They have very, uh, compelling perspectives on what was going on in this squad. Um, just terrific people to hear their story. Um,
1: yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, um, I was really taken with, uh, how how uh smart these guys were. Yeah. You know, they're very smart, articulate, uh, in some cases thoughtful guys uh who who had a lot to say. You know, I think there's sometimes there is an impression among, you know, some segments of America that um that infantrymen are, are kind of, you know, perhaps mindless thugs or grunts or something like you know of this nature. And right. and I think, you know, that's a real mistake. You know, a lot of the guys that serve you know, this is a volunteer army, so that's not, uh, you know, these are guys who are highly motivated, um, and some of them are, you know, have career ambitions in the military. Some of them are doing it for, for college money. So right. these are guys that um, it's not because they, you know, had nothing else to do in their life uh, and this, or they were, you know, conscripted or something. Uh, these are guys that um, really wanted this. Um, right. and, and their motivations are... Uh, you know, generally honorable, but, um, you know, and I think that's what's so tragic about the story is that Adam was one of those kids and he had perhaps a somewhat naive, uh, uh, view of, of what being in the army and serving overseas would be like. Uh, and the reality of that was, was tragically, um, uh, nothing like the, the movie version.
0: Yeah. And, and also, um, by the way, we're speaking with Dan Krauss, the director producer of the film, the documentary, The Kill Team, and yeah, I absolutely agree. I I think that this one of the wonderful things about The Kill Team is this kind of tone. They're it's a very um, engaging documentary. I always felt like I was getting um, a uh, an objective idea. I was whoever whoever you had on screen. I didn't think that there was in any way uh, an attempt to sort of force a perspective on those people that we were watching. I I really appreciate that. That that
1: was really, really important to me and to the the entire filmmaking team. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is this is not a a film with an agenda, Um, and you know that's a little uh, hard sometimes to convince people because you know characters in the film say things that are very incendiary. Um, but it's important to draw a distinction between what the characters' journeys are and what that has left them feeling versus what I am trying to say as a filmmaker. Um, and um, we always were very, very conscious and spent many, many, many hours trying to uh, not, not uh, make an objective uh, uh, perspective from a, a journalistic point of view. In other words, we weren't sort of, you know, trying to encompass both sides of an argument or Mm -hmm. something like that in the way that the New York Times would, or some other uh, more traditional journalistic enterprise. Um, What I mean was we were trying not to push a message for the film. We wanted to be experiential. We wanted viewers to be able to draw their own conclusions. Uh, And most important, we wanted to be clear that this is not a film that was intended to... um, cast a shadow on the military throw stones at the military this is not um, this is not liberal propaganda this is a film that um, ha, you know is urgent because it is it's true and I think you know um, there are soldiers who want to talk about instances in which they've been forced to do things perhaps or, or failed to prevent things from happening that they're having a very difficult time living with mm-hmm. um and i hope this film will will be part of that conversation i also hope that um that it can be a tool for the military to use for for officers in the f- in the future in other words this isn't a film that uh we intend as a challenge to the military uh but rather as uh you know i see it more as an opportunity for for potentially for for people to um see what happened in this in this instance, and and learn from it, yeah. um, you know. Just as uh, with any sort of disaster, you put the pieces back together and you try to understand why the disaster took place in the uh, originally, so that when you recognize the signs uh, down the road, uh, perhaps disaster can be averted. Now, that's not to say that I think this film or, or really any film has the power to. Um, stop war crimes from occurring, and that's sort of the point of the film. In a way, is that they are they're unavoidable. We can predict that they will happen in every uh, every time that uh, uh, mm. troops are engaged in in conflict. I mean, it's happened since the beginning of recorded history. Right. So it's not the job of the film, nor would I presume that we we as filmmakers have the power to stop war crimes. But certainly, uh, a, an awareness of what leads to these outcomes is valuable.
0: I agree, and I, I would I would couch it in a slightly different term. I would say this should be, at the very least, a reminder to the U.S. military and the in the chain of command uh, responsible for these uh, soldiers that, the, as you said, since the beginning of recorded history, people will abuse their advantage over innocence, and uh, especially, I mean, just a kind of historic historically speaking since the end of world war 1 the vast majority of casualties in wartime now are civilians if you want to be safe in a war be a soldier safer and it, and yeah, it, it, I hadn't that's...
1: quite thought of it that way but it, it the um the amount of civili- civilians that are that are killed in these conflicts is staggering yeah. um and you know um presumably most of these deaths are accidental um but the thing that is i think very upsetting to people is to to wonder if more of them were not intentional, and that's yeah. part of the thing that makes the film seem like it's, it has a political agenda. Um, but no. uh, <laughs> you know, we as filmmakers were just as startled to, to to understand this as anyone, and and we think it's important to know that. Uh, I mean, no one, of course, should be shocked that atrocities occur in war, yeah. but the the idea that a group of young mostly good kids could be convinced to to carry out these killings in a, in such a premeditated fashion should be a wake up for
0: everybody yeah well I, again yes absolutely right this is that's is a longer discussion for sure but um i i congratulate you on a, just a wonderfully made documentary uh, as we said uh, earlier i mean it, it's uh, you get you get the full range of of points of view and, and, and everyone in it is very articulate. We barely touched on, on Emma and Christopher, uh, and, uh, Adam's parents, but they were, mm-hmm. they're wonderful in this film. And I mean, I think very honest and, uh, in it. And I, my hat's off to them for allowing you at the end the kind of access that, uh, is hard to imagine under the circumstances, but they were, they obviously trusted you and, uh, it's,
1: yeah, they're terrific people and, uh, uh you know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to them for, um, for letting me share this very painful part of their
0: lives. Yeah, well, let's again remind our listeners uh, that you'll be uh, Dan Kraus. You'll be in town here at the uh, the New Art, right off it's Santa Monica Boulevard, right off the four hundred five. It's right there. Yeah. You can't miss it. You'll be there tonight, April, uh, August eighth, your Friday night and Saturday night. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the the time. For...
1: Yes, I'll be there at the um, doing Q and As at the seven thirty and the nine forty p.m. Screenings, both Friday and Saturday night.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Again, Once again, I want to remind our listeners, it is an Academy Award nominated, also Emmy Award nominated for your first film, The Death of Kevin Carter. Uh, but we are talking to, about the, the, the Kill Team now, uh, director, producer, cinematographer, uh, Dan Krause. Thank you so much for being on Film School.
1: Thanks so much for having me.